everyone, and welcome to season two of the Psychology PhD, a podcast produced about psychology PhD programs by grad students right here in the Columbia University Psychology Department. Once again, I'm Monica Tiu, a fifth year PhD student in the department, and for season two, we will be doing an interview series where I'll be learning more about the diversity of experiences that people can bring into grad school from other grad students here in our program. So I personally am really excited to get to talk to people and possibly learn things about my colleagues that I didn't even know. So I'm excited to take you on this journey with me. And for our very first guest in season two, I'd like to welcome Anna Venucci who is a third year PhD student in the Developmental Affective Neuroscience Lab led by Dr. Nim Tottenham. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, Monica. I'm super excited to be here. I've had, I signed, I wanted to participate and share my experiences because I've had a lot of twists and turns throughout my journey to coming to Columbia. Yeah, and I'm really excited to hear about those things, especially because I think it's a bit different from my experience. So I guess we'll just sort of start out with sort of broadly, like what did your path to grad school look like? <laughs> well, it'll take a few minutes for me to explain. So, but the, sh Please do. the short version, um, so I'll start at the end. So I came to grad school, I think, what was it? I came to grad school. I started grad school at 34. Um, and so now I'm in my third year. I'm 36, turning 37. And it's been like a whirlwind <laughs> from here, but always sort of moving in this direction. And I finally feel like I'm now at the place where I'm really meant to be and I'm thriving and really love what That's I'm great. doing. Yeah. Um, so right after grad school, so I went to a small liberal arts college, um, in New England and there was virtually no research there. I specifically went there because I really wanted small classes and like an intimate teaching experiences where I knew my professors were really passionate about teaching. And so there weren't really a lot of research opportunities there. And I didn't even know that research was a job. I just sort of followed what I liked and discovered psychology and anthropology and all kinds of more social science. I was, found myself interested in more social science topics. And it wasn't until I was in one of my classes, Abnormal Psychology, and mm -hmm. the professor um, sort of introduced me to this idea of helping her with research. And I was like, what do you mean helping you with research? Because she was Ooh. one of the few, she was one of the few professors in the department who like had a large ongoing study. And she was like, I just think you'd okay. be great at it. I, she's like, I, cause I love, I love being in class. I was always like one of those, you know, people that always had my hands up. And like sitting questions. in the front asking questions. Yeah, totally nerding it out. Um, and so she, I helped her with a sleep study um, where we'd bring in adolescents and we'd like do their sleep patterns. And I was like, this is cool. Um, I don't know if it's, so I really at that point was really drawn to like the discovery process. And, but I was also drawn at that time in college. I was very, I was also a women's and gender studies um, major as well. And so I was really into like public pol policy and advocacy efforts for reproductive rights it's, and things like that. I don't know if that's going to be too touchy. Which I mean, like <laughs> we need that, you know, now more than ever. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> and so I wasn't sure exactly. So I had these two paths in my mind when I was 
in my senior year when I was gearing up to think of like what I wanted to do next. And I had done a really great year um, at a, a study abroad year at Oxford um, in my junior year where I did like a lot of research. That's really where like I got my research, did my first research projects and was like, this is so cool. But I also really love these other, these other topics. So what I did, I was able, I was really fortunate to be able to get a Fulbright fellowship where that allowed me the yeah, I was I was like in shock I was like what it feels like one in a million um but I kind of had this like off-the-cuff project w- that I proposed um to in Turkey um so I went to Turkey and I examined focused on using anthropological methods such, such as participant observation and semi-structured interviews as well as just like actively like engaging in the community to conduct research on how women's and young girls participation in soccer as well as like not just playing soccer but like going out and like supporting teams um and how that like influenced like their identities and like empowerment in public public spaces because in turkey although it is a a fairly progressive uh, Middle East, Middle Eastern country or Asian Eastern, (laughs) Middle Eastern country. Um, It, there are, women are still very much um, treated differently and don't have as many opportunities to like be out and about um, and feel comfortable in spaces out and about. So that was something that I did and it was really fun. And it also, it allowed me to think about, it like really married the two things of like research on psychological and social phenomena. And then also like, because it was a Fulbright fellowship, I was essentially everyone around me, everyone that I knew who was doing it was all doing what they were all doing public policy stuff and I had lots of like state department interactions and so I got a sense for what it would be like. I realized how much like politicking there needs to be like to work in the government system, (laughs) to work in the government system and and those kinds of, and those kinds of roles. And I knew I didn't want to do that because I am just not a person who see my personality. And so I, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm not one of those people. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to go down the research path and thought about, didn't know what what kind of research. I knew it was something in psychology. I thought maybe merging anthropology and psychology um, based on my Fulbright experience. But I knew for sure, without a doubt, I was like, well, I don't think that I would get accepted. I just had this thought that I was like, there's no way I'm gonna get accepted into a program. I feel like I need more like hard, traditional hardcore research experiences. That was not based on something anyone had told me because I didn't know anyone in research. It was just based on my own insecurities. Um, I mean, from what you're telling me now, saying that you did like a research project on a Fulbright scholarship, I think you would have been plenty qualified at the time, but I didn't, I so did not feel, I so did not feel qualified. Um, But, you know, it happens. And so I essentially, because I also knew nobody in research from Turkey, I then just started cold, like exactly what you're not supposed to do. I started just cold emailing professors like across the United States and labs that I thought I would really want to work in and it was so unsuccessful it wasn't even funny I think I heard back from maybe 10 people but um out of like 
definitely over a hundred emails because because I just, I really wanted to cast a broad net and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't coming from any, a traditional research background. Like I didn't have any connections. I wanted to try to get the best experience that I could um, doing like more like traditional quantitative rigorous methods, because then that would help me figure out if I wanted to go more more qualitative, more anthropological, or more psychological. And so I- That makes sense. Yeah. And so I got a research assistant job um, at Washington University in St. Louis uh, in the Department of Psychiatry with a professor. And was this mm-hmm. um, a volunteer job or a paid job? This was a paid job. So I was only- okay. excellent. Yeah. I was only, only seeking out, I, like, just because I- you know, from the age of 18, I'm, I've been basically supporting myself um, through college and everything. And so it wasn't an option for me to have something that was unpaid. I just, yeah. And so it, you know, here in New York, I think it's very common. Many research assistantships are unpaid, which I hope it's, it's, yeah. I know. I really don't like it. You and me both. <laughs> when I came here and realized that people, volunteer for like full-time research assistantships after college I was in shock um because I just couldn't imagine someone being able to like survive and like pay for them pay for their own living um and so I it is something that I think we're trying to change I know here in the department we're making efforts towards being able to pay pay research assistance and there are some funded spots um, so that's something that I think is just a, it's like a broader issue. And so I was, I was in some ways limited, but you can, but if you do cast a broad net, which is what I did, cause I ha- I t- kind of took the perspective of I'm only, this is a, this is a time limited position. This is going to be a two year position. Why don't I use it as an opportunity to live somewhere different, to live somewhere I'd never thought I'd ever live. I'll make some friends, I'll build some connections and then I'll see what happens from there because, yeah. and so I was like, okay, St. Louis. I never, I never thought I would live in the Midwest. I've been like a Northeasterner through and through. Um, but being in St. But it was like kind of like a perfect kind of city um, environment to be in. Cause like, I didn't like grow up or go to college in, in, in large cities. I'm sort of from a small town. And so I feel like St. Louis has like a, moderately sized kind of a small city was perfect it's not as like (laughs) aggressive yeah it was an intro now I'm like such a city person it's not even funny but um, (laughs) I've totally flipped on that but that was a good intro um I think to that just like in terms of lifestyle and I ended up working in a clinical research lab for the prevention and treatment of eating and weight disorders under um under this amazing woman, um, Professor Denise Wolfley, who sort of like picked me out of the, my, me as the needle out of her haystack. And (laughs) we just connected on a lot of levels. Um, like I'm a twin, she had twins and it just, uh, and then I think we both like were passionate about like the same things. I didn't have any eating and weight disorder research experience or necessarily an interest in the past. But really what sold me was I thought that she would be a phenomenal mentor. We, she just immediately 
I felt like I was in good hands when I was talking to her, even though I was talking to her from like a small internet cafe in Turkey. <laughs> and even still through, through, through that without Zoom, when there's nothing on video, um, I just had, like we shared a lot of commonalities that were- That's amazing. Per, yeah, that were perhaps even like above and beyond like the research topic. So I just felt a gut feeling like I have to go there. So while I was at, Wash U, working on all different types of treatment studies. I got some experience coordinating studies, meaning like learning how to recruit participants, keep participants in, bring them into the lab and do all kinds of behavioral tasks as well as clinical interviews. And then on the back end, I also got some opportunities to like assist with manuscript writing, which I think is in some labs, it can be not common at all. Um, you're not on papers at all, but other labs, I think even now, more especially, people are recognizing the contributions of post-bacs, uh, post-baccalaureate research assistants, and are do try to give them opportunities, but it can vary by lab. And I got a little bit of experience with that. And I had been really, really bitten at that point by the research bug, like I, became really interested in what, how to define, like what we like behaviorally define what we mean by a binge, binge eating episode, because it's so confusing to define it, um, develop, cause it changed like the nature of a, how much you eat and whether you're losing control changes drastically across the lifespan and in different contexts. So I began to like really become really interested in that. I had no idea that that would ever, ever interest me. And like, I couldn't have paid you to tell, like, so I think that's very, to me, like that really underscored the idea of like keeping yourself open and letting research just grab you, like let the topics grab you. Like you're, you could be really, really surprised by what you end up being really interested in if you keep yourself open and so with that, so we went through those doors. Um, and then when everyone around me, so was in a clinical psych PhD and I liked, I was good at, and I really enjoyed working with participants that we had. A lot of them were patients that had diagnoses of various eating disorders. I also really, really liked working with families and young children for our prevention programs because I feel like you can just make so much of a difference in their lives in early childhood. You can really change their life trajectory. Whereas by the time someone gets to adulthood that it, it, it's harder, it just is harder because behavioral patterns are so entrenched and there's a lot of other things going on with adults that make presentations more clinical presentations, more complicated. And so I didn't ever think that I was going to do a clinical practice like to me doing therapy did not for a full-time job did not seem like an option I was interested in I was very interested I knew for sure I was 100% gonna do research but I felt like it felt like a safer option at that time at that time to do a clinical psych program one because like that's what everyone I knew was doing and so I was like well this must just be what people do even if they just want to do research and also I felt like oh well as a backup I, if I some if somehow research doesn't end up working out for me um, 
I can always like fall back on this clinical degree, which so interesting to hear you say that maybe you're alluding to that because my sense is that clinical psych PhD admissions are so much more competitive than pure research PhD admissions. So it's so funny to hear you say, oh, this was my backup because I don't know if I could do research full time. I know. And it's uh, like going back and thinking about my like what I was my thought process, like how I thought I would never get into grad school um, after a Fulbright scholarship or fellowship. Um, I, I don't know. I was, I think I was always, because I have had such insecurities about like my, like my ability to do research and my own idea. Like I don't always have confidence in my ideas and I do have a lot more of that now, but, but, but early on I was like, I had no, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing and I did, I wasn't convinced that anyone would ever let me into grad school uh, or that anyone would ever think my research was interesting or would I be able to come up with a good question. Um, so I did go down, yeah, I did go down the clinical PhD route and I applied to programs. I got in to virtually all of them, which was a huge shock wow. to me. I know it was like, that's incredible. A hundred percent shocking. Um, and so I ended up choosing a program that was sort of a unique program. It was through, it was it's through the Uniformed Services University, which sounds like hmm, okay. you're not in the military, um, yeah. and I wasn't. I was a I was a civilian, and but the really attractive component of that specific program was one, the person who I applied to work with was doing exactly what I thought I wanted to do, which was pediatric binge eating. And like, she was the the person who kind of was the first person to ever research pediatric binge eating. So from a, a topic level, like she was doing exactly what I wanted to do. But what was really exciting to me was that the National Institutes of Health was right across the street. And so my lab were all of my lab work and research occurred at the National Institutes of Health. And they, it was just, it's an incredibly resourced institu institution and you learn so much about how grant funding works and just kind of the inner workings of, of the government. So I started that program. Um, I, and I, I mean, I, I mean, I like, I, I liked it, but I would say I never loved it. Um, and so after a few years, I and I truly, truly came to hate the clinical component. I hated it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because I felt like and it's and I was I was actually really good at it. Like I always got good reviews from my um, prof professors because I could I had this ability. I had this ability to form a rapport with with people and like get them to trust me and quit and I'm like with your clients yeah yeah with my clients and but I felt like every time so you would do in clinical PhD programs you do you do your clinical stuff for 20 hours a week which is like half your time and so every so it's a, it eats up so much of your time and so for me as someone who was pretty much prim primarily interested in research I felt like if someone when I like every hour that I spent doing clinical work, I wished I was I wished I was doing research. And if I had a oh, wow. if I had a client cancel, I was like, yes, I can like take this time <laughs> and like work on a paper. And 
when I got further and further in, I just realized, I was like, I cannot do this. I was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. I had already gotten my master's and even got to the point where I wrote a dissertation prospectus and had finished oh, wow. and had finished all my classwork, but there were still probably three more years of training and like clinical oh, training. Wow. Um, and also during that time, my research interests had really, really shifted. I became very, realized that what I was interested in, what grabbed me about binge eating in the first place were these emotional mechanisms that lead to emotion-driven behavior. And I became really interested in neurodevelopment, essentially not, not anything of what I was doing at the time. And so I always had this thought, even if I had stayed in the program, like, would it be possible for me to like shift to doing something more like developmental, yeah, effective neuroscience? And I just, one, I didn't think it would be possible, but more than that, I was just so unhappy at that point and I also simultaneously had a lot had a lot of medical issues um because there were just a number of things that (laughs) that happened um I mean you know you can't control like when no medical issues happen to you and so I took a medical leave of absence and during that medical leave of absence I really just rethought like what I wanted my life to look like and what I wanted to do And I knew it was still research, but I also knew that it was not going to be in any kind of clinical realm. I knew I loved development. I loved at-risk populations. I didn't want to do treatment research. So I didn't need a clinical PhD. And I was so unhappy doing it that I made like the super risky decision to leave. And I was almost, I was also pretty convinced that like no other PhD program would probably ever get me ever again, because why would, (laughs) why would they ever accept a student who left a PhD program? It's like, (laughs) if past behavior predicts future behavior. Um, I mean, like, I see why you were thinking that. And yet, you know, like, when you describe the reasons that you realized that your first PhD program was really not a good fit, like those all make complete sense like the Mm -hmm. you know the clinical training wasn't what you were there for the research topic that your advisor at the time was best equipped to advise was not what you ended up wanting to research and it's true that like changing your focus can be really hard but I mean the decision makes sense based on all the things that you've said so yeah I don't think any of those things disqualify you from being able to do another PhD well if that PhD is what you actually want to be researching. Right. And I am like living proof that it can happen. So <laughs> I always, that like you can make all the wrong, cho- like all the wrong choices because I felt like what I was doing was what, maybe not what my heart wanted, but what my head thought I should do. I think that's kind of like in retrospect what led me to kind of go down that path. I was like, well, this is what people should do and this is what I should do. And this is going to, I've done this eating and weight disorders topic. So I should, I mean, how could I switch fields? I'll be best equipped in programs that do that. So it was more thinking with my head rather than like marrying my head with my heart. And I think that's super important, like looking back on really how like, to make these decisions. And a lot of students now ask me like, how did you know you wanted to study like early life adversity and neural development and emotional development? And I say like, it honest, 
you when you it's one of those things that I tell people I'm like when you're interested in something you know it's and it will just grab you because it you just find yourself really interested in the papers wanting to look out more thinking of questions and it's really an organic process that I can't fully describe I and and it's just something that grabs you for whatever reason or another I so it's yeah, you can seek out, you can try to seek out different interests, um, and then you can also just be grabbed by different interests. Um, so after that, I was, I felt like I really wanted to be around, like, friends. I had been living away from, like, a lot of my close friends and family for, like, six, seven years or so, seven or eight years at that point. Because at this point, you would have been living in the DMV area? Yeah, I would have been, yeah, the D.C. area. And I, all my family is like in Connecticut and Massachusetts and that's where like the vast majority of my friends are. Um, So I decided to, I was like, okay, I'm going to move back to that area and then I'm going to find a job and I'm going to find a job that, because there are a number of universities in the area and I thought there's got to be some kind of developmental emotional type of position available to me and so I was able it was kind of also kind of like felt like fate like the first time where I interviewed for this position that I just happened to be the perfect candidate for it was like a really really good match and so I ended up being the project coordinator um almost like a post I would say it's almost felt like a postdoc role and that like I designed this huge longitudinal cohort study. There was funding to do a longitudinal cohort study starting in early adolescence and tracking, uh, looking at risk factors and protective factors for the emergence of depression and anxiety across adolescence. And so I really got to have a lot of agency in designing that study. And I was in charge of like 100% all the aspects of it so oh wow yeah I like still can't believe I did what I did actually we had um 1500 adolescents who we would get biannual assessments from and across like seven different schools and I would have to do we would have and so I supervised this team of like 30 undergrads and I still don't know how I did it um and like doing those data collection processes in a variety of school settings from rural to urban and sort of all range of like a really diverse range of uh across the social across the socioeconomic spectrum i said i guess um and so it was that was really it was an intense time because we were constantly like prepping for data collection, but we also had, I made this rule that I would have to have all the data because that we were doing paper surveys because of my, my PI or my, the researcher of the lab was like, really wanted to do paper surveys just because, (sighs) and I know. So I had to have undergraduates double enter data from 1500 kids. And then I had to go through the process of resolving and cleaning it all and getting like all the scales calculated so people could actually look at the data. And I had to do that every six months for 1500 kids. And I did it for four years. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So it was intense, but it really... I was like, I love developmental research. And I, because the study was pretty broad, I was able to explore 
a range of topics within developmental psychology that I might be interested in. So I looked at like emotion regulation and depression. I looked at peer victimization. I looked at family functioning and was able to learn some methods, statistical methods for longitudinal data analysis, and really began to this process of exploration and seeking out different topics to see what would grab me. And it and I stayed there for a long time. I stayed there through the duration of the project four years. And it really took the four full years before I felt like I really knew what I was doing. I had some evidence to back up like what I was interested in uh, based on just, I was able to work on some papers and, and things like that. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And at that point, and I don't think everyone needs to know like exactly what they want to do when they apply for grad school. Usually it's like a, a bit like a particular topic area and maybe one or two questions. But I was like, I really wanted to be sure about what I was interested in <laughs> this time around. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm ready. And then because, yeah. and so, and I just felt like really settled also in myself. I felt very like personally just very it was probably like the most personally comfortable in myself I felt in my life I had a really great support network that was better than I felt like it ever had been and so I felt like just really personally solid but then also I really felt solid in what I wanted to knowing kind of the air knowing the area that I wanted to do for research and so at that point I was like okay I'm ready to put myself out there again I'm going through this <laughs> application process I had to retake the GREs because my GR my GREs and hopefully going forward programs are moving towards not having GREs yeah. because of how biased they can be uh, but at the time I needed to take them so I had to take them um, and I just you know, I applied to, because again, I found myself because of my, I was a little bit insecure of my history with leaving that program that yeah. I felt a little insecure applying to programs. Again, I found myself in this place where I was like, I'm not going to get into any programs. It's like being <laughs> as obnoxiously qualified as you were objectively. I know. I think it's still very easy to find the one thing of like, oh, this is going to be the thing that torpedoes all of my applications and now nothing else matters, but. Yeah, and I definitely both times around got really focused on that and I didn't realize like what qualifications I had or like the strengths that I had and that's like still something I have to consistently try to point out in myself and I'm getting a lot better at it. But yeah, there's no one perfect. I think one thing I learned from that is there and hearing everyone's experiences here at Columbia is there's no one perfect application and it's impossible to feel like every single ap aspect of your application is absolutely perfect because as researchers we're all constantly works in progress and we're progressing yeah you know and i just wish i could have like told my like younger self that like it, you're you are qualified you have something meaningful to bring and other people are going to see that in you and so this time around, I went a little nuttier with my applications because I was so insecure about having left my p previous PhD program. I applied to 15 places, which I think is on the very high end. Um, That's, 
I think twice as many places as I applied to. Yeah, I think it's twice as many places as anyone applies to. So, <laughs> but I was again super insecure. I and then I was so surprised when I got did really well in the application process again. I was shocked. No one cared about the fact that I had left a PhD program. It was all about where I was now. And I think I really was able to use my personal statement to craft the narrative of how I got to where I got to and why I wanted to go, like why I was interested in this topic now in a in a compelling way, in a convincing way at yeah. least. And so I think mm-hmm. your story is a really, really good example. Flashback to season one episode. I don't remember what episode number it is, but we do have an episode on crafting statements of purpose. And Anna, your story is like a perfect crystallization of when a statement of purpose can really like elevate your application. Because me listening to you talk, it's very easy to see, yes, like the experiences that you kind of like went on sort of all kind of eventually led you to the thing that what you're interested in now, where like on paper, it's like, oh, well, this person has done a lot of things. And for you, it's like the, and this is a question I suppose that I'll ask, but that it really sounds to me that like little pieces of what you took out of all of your previous experiences, like sort of iteratively took you kind of like a, I don't know, like a Monte Carlo sampler. to the research topic that you have now and that there's really like there's a story there because the narrative is your life experience led you to this research topic which is like exactly what the statement of purpose is for yeah exactly i think that i had to do so much self-reflection and thinking about how i got to where i did because in the moment it doesn't feel as purposeful or you it's hard to put together all the little links when you're kind of when you're making different decisions um in your life like you're just making your decisions the best that you can with the information that you have and but the personal statement really is a look back and like being able to sort of crystallize what did i get out of this and how did it propel me to my next move and my next date and then when I came to Columbia, oh my God, I was such an, I loved it here so much. When I, it was my, one of my earlier school, I think it was one of my earlier schools that I interviewed at. Everyone was just so nice. And I got the sense that it was not a competitive environment, which was really refreshing because I had been at some places where it did seem a little more cutthroat and people weren't necessarily as friendly toward each other or collaborative with each other. And I loved how Columbia, for me, like I love the agency that Columbia expects from students where you, all the students, when I heard like what students were doing now, they really like were designing their own experiments and designing their own studies. Whereas like my previous experience, it was all secondary data analysis because working on things like randomized control trials or long-term developmental longitudinal studies, it's hard to just like collect that data. Yeah, like someone has taken years to do it, like design in advance and you just sort of show up at the tail end almost. Yeah, and that limits like the kinds of questions you can ask. And so I was really excited at the prospect. I loved the depart. I could see myself fitting into NIMS lab was exactly what I wanted to do, Professor Tottenham's lab. And she, again, like I just had 
such wonderful conversations with her during my interview experience that I felt like we connected and were excited about the same things. And she just seemed like in, like an incredibly warm person, someone that I would want to be mentored by, both on like an interpersonal level as well as a research level because she's an absolute rock star on a research level. And I was incredibly impressed by all the other faculty in the department and noticed that there was a lot of cross collaboration across labs, which I thought was super interesting because I just hadn't seen that in a lot of other departments. And so I really felt like, oh, I could really start to like carve out my own niche here and felt like I wasn't just beholden to like what the whatever longitudinal study we were working on, which I still love, but I can also like design, design my own mechanistic studies. And that was something I was really excited to do. So that's, that's how I got here. And I still wow. love it. I, I know a lot of people get say like, oh, you get jaded throughout grad school, but I'm still one of those people who feels so lucky to be where I am. Aww. Like when I, it's so because, and it also like when I was, I remember, I remembered when I came on campus one of the first times is that when I was applying for undergraduate schools, I really wanted to interview in New York City, even though I think I would have, it would have been overwhelming for me at the time. And, and my dad uh, had, was basically saying, like I got really good grades and was at, like basically at the top of my class in high mm-hmm. school, but he was like, well, you're never going to be able to go somewhere like that. Like you have to pay for your, oh. you have to pay for yourself. Like, why do you think you could get in that kind of thing? And so he oh said gosh. it wasn't worthwhile because even if I did get in, there's no way I could like, afford oh to gosh, go. Yeah. And so that was always like a teeny bit heartbreaking for me. And it's not something I thought about while I was interviewing. But when I got here, I was like, wow, this is like a full circle moment. Like I did it. Yeah. Like I went from Go, knowing absolutely nothing about research to sort of scrapping my way through and figuring out how the system kind of works. I still don't fully know how it works, but I'm learning every day. And I have made it here and I love, like I just feel a lot of gratitude every time. I truly feel a lot of gratitude when I walk onto wow. campus every day. I Aww. really, really do. Because I, I think maybe my life experiences, like it's not something that... I don't like I just don't take it for granted and I'm I feel really lucky to be here wow that's so warm and fuzzy I know it's so warm and fuzzy but it's true (laughs) so I'm sure you get this a lot um but especially like you know this question is valid for everyone but especially as someone who like your story is very much like a the iterating through the different like life and research and academic experiences that you had that led you to where you are now do you think that you could have gotten to the point like research and like personal like comfort in your research and in your ability as a researcher do you think you could have gotten to this point if you'd taken a different path or do you kind of feel like this was the only way for me to be where I am now and comfortable and where I am now. I have, I no, I have thought about that. Like, is there anything that I would change and would that, how would that affect me now? And I honestly think I had to go through all those things, like, especially in the absence of a lot of, like, of any peer mentorship or really knowing anything about the research process and how to get there. That's why I'm like, 
I was so excited to just be a part of this podcast and <gasps> the fact that we're doing the podcast because like I wish that there was something like this out there for me to listen to when I was trying to go through this and I th- I don't think so like I had to learn these lessons firsthand and I'm the kind of, like I literally made probably just about every mistake you can um, I don't know if I would even call them mistakes but I made all kinds of choices that like I wish that that came out of mostly a place of insecurity actually and so for me it was like even just like this building it was really built about building like confidence in my skills and and feeling like I really know knew what I wanted to do I felt like and I, I think that has helped me here because I came in like really understanding what I wanted to do and it allowed me to like hit the ground running when I was when I got here yeah absolutely I mean as someone who came into the PhD program like two years out of undergrad, I definitely came in sort of being like, I have no idea what I want to be doing. Um, I'll just, you know, like I'll do whatever my advisor says and then I'll like find, I'll find something. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to hear from someone who is able, you know, like by virtue of having tried so many things to know kind of exactly what you want to do it's sort of this like ideal of like you arrive and you're like I have like this research project and then you just kind of make it work but like you know people don't like just sort of pop out of thin air being fully formed researchers and intellectuals like you had so much experience that led you up to that point so one thing that has been recommended to me and that I definitely recommend to other people Um, is not to be afraid of taking research and professional opportunities that might not necessarily be like exactly the thing that you think you want to study because you'll basically always take something from it especially like if it's something that you might be interested in doing but you're not sure that sometimes getting experience with something that you don't want to do is just as valuable if not more valuable than like hitting on something that you do want to do so i'm curious if you can talk like i you know you alluded to this rather you said it pretty clearly when you were talking about your experience in the clinical psych phd program that you ended up leaving if you could talk a little bit about the things that you like realized that you didn't want to do and how that experience like helped you crystallize what you're where you're at now based on my experiences i found out things that i did not like to do i think like all of the my experience with randomized control trials i didn't end up liking them because i didn't like the process of randomizing people to control groups that i felt like weren't going to work and with people that were had eating just like had eating disorders and and I would have to run both different types of groups and that was like just a huge challenge for me I just felt like I wanted like if we think this is working I just wanted to give it to those people but that's like you kind of felt sort of guilty like are we withholding treatment from yeah it's also incredibly it wasn't all research is difficult but treatment research wasn't the type of difficult that I wanted because I just felt like that ethical thing of like I know randomized control trials are crucial to under to establishing an evidence base for new treatments 
but it also takes so long to disseminate those findings like it's yeah. like stuff the the studies that i worked on back like more than a decade ago maybe have just like one or two papers out right now wow. and it's definitely not even close to clinical practice you know wow. and so it's yeah and because you have to kind of follow people for a long time as well like developmental studies and I just feel like the research to treatment gap is so hard that that like requires its own research and I wasn't passionate about doing that type of research of learning how to transport research programs to actually be used in the community yeah and and I know like whole labs whose research focus is literally the research to treatment yep. gap. Yep. And it just wasn't something I just, I was just so, I'm so, I'm a really, I realized that I, since I was a young kid, I really, really always wanted to know how things worked and why. Like I go down, I would go that through down all kinds of rabbit holes. And so I think that was just a characteristic of myself that was really borne out into the research, into what I ended up I mean, wanting to look at like, research. You know, the dream of, like people who are interested in research should be people who want to know how my things work so yeah and but I didn't necessarily want to know how treatments worked I just wanted to know like how psychopath like how different types of psychopathology develop and so that we can just yeah the basic science the basic mechanisms because I think without basic mechanism and good theory on that how can you possibly develop effective treatments and in the world of early life adversity we know it's undisputed that early life adversity poses higher risk for mental health problems across the lifespan but we still don't really know how or why people end up in different positions and so that's really something that i'm working on now yeah i really like i like this sort of thread that i'm pulling out that just because you're not interested in doing a particular type of research doesn't mean that like that type of research is bad or less valuable like there is so much of this idea that you just need to like at some points you need to prioritize yourself Mm -hmm. and say like i'm going to be the best researcher that i can be if i'm working on studies that i'm interested in and also that don't sort of take the emotional gas out like you don't Mm want to get burned out doing research that in some way like demoralizes you for example if you really don't like the feeling of like I hate that people have to be in the control group because I wish I could be giving everyone the treatment because, you know, mm-hmm. I want everyone to be getting um, what we think is possibly the best treatment that you don't have to be the person who does that. Like, you can do the research that you feel most motivated to do because that's how you're going to be the best researcher you can be. Exactly. And also with doing the clinical interviews with all of these participants, many, many, I mean, virtually all kids, almost all kids that I ever interviewed as part of these clinical studies had lots, very, ups, like, ups, emotionally upsetting experiences, lots of early life trauma. And that is what I study now and I'm passionate about it, but I don't personally have to do the interviews we have a clinical team that does those interviews because that was a real emotional like 
that really emotionally got me like got me would get me down sometimes because I just wanted to help these poor kids and so removing myself one step allows me to like back to more basic research allows me to work with this population that I feel really passionately about and want and want to do research in but I don't have to like go through the like take it doesn't take the emotional toll on me that it would do if I was in a clinical setting all right so I see that we are I think getting close to our time so I'd like to ask you before we wind down if there's anything else you'd like to add that you haven't already said or if there is any type of advice that you'd like to give um, to people listening that you haven't already said, just what's on your mind? Yeah, I would say that flexibility and persistence are like two are two characteristics that will help you throughout figuring out what you want to do and will help you once you get to grad school because things even whether it's just a study or whether it's your life things never work out the way you think they're going to work out it's so rare for someone's life plan to just work out like they hope and so to realize that like academia is in large part like rejection like getting used to rejection and so having persistence through that and thinking flexible flexibly about how to shift and pivot is a really, I think, are two characteristics, are two things that I think can carry you a long way. And then I would also say, I know that um, for me, when I was younger, my first my first go around, I was really obsessed with this idea that I had to do things on a certain timeline because I, I was like, oh, I, I'm going to school, I'm starting grad school when I'm 25. And I, and so that I could get a professor degree when I'm in my 30s. And then that's probably a good time to have kids. And now here and like, you can't plan that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I think like, if like being comfortable with taking more time and going veering off the track of even if you have like that PhD in mind if you don't feel like you're quite ready or you want a different experience go ahead and take it because it's not one or two years is not like gonna or even like for me like five or ten years (laughs) is not going to make a huge difference in the broad scope of your life Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that. This has been a wonderful way to kick off our interview season for season two. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for having me, Monica. And just as before, we'll be updating the show notes to include links to relevant topics discussed throughout this interview as soon as each new episode launches. You'll be able to find the show notes below this episode in the description if you're watching on YouTube or in the show notes section of whatever podcast app you're listening on. And again, To receive notifications when new episodes are released, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Again, you're also welcome to join our email list to receive an email each time we release a new episode. And finally, if you found this interview and the other content that we release helpful, please consider liking the episode on YouTube or rating and reviewing the show in your preferred podcast app. And we will be coming to you next time with another interview. Bye!